All right, hello, popular people. Uh, you're listening to The Popular Show. I'm James A. Smith, as ever. And today I'm joined by Jake Berry, who is the Conservative Member of Parliament for Rossendale and Darwin in Northwest Lancashire. Jake, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, James. Good to see you and all your viewers today. And are you well, mate? I'm all right, actually, keeping going through this pandemic like so many people. In, in 2019, um, this is a familiar story to... British listeners, uh, but um, for, for the, the sake of our international audience, in 2019, the um, kind of a kind of secular tendency um, of voters in the north of England to abandon uh, the Labour Party came to its fruition with an enormous um, swing to the Conservative Party and a whole kind of range of seats that had long been safely the property of the Labour Party became became Tory for the first time. And in response to that, you have set up a, a kind of group of MPs. Uh, you went to Parliament in 2010. You, you've, you've gathered together the Northern Conservative MPs in uh, what you call the Northern Research Group uh, to sort of represent the interests of this new kind of grouping in the, the Conservatives base. Could you explain that project to us and, and what work you're doing? Yeah, of course, James. And, you know, actually, you've explained it very well. Of course, we all saw a huge electoral shift in 2019. I think textbooks will be written about why that was. For me, actually campaigning in my marginal seat in Lancashire, it was more about Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn, than Brexit and his leadership of the Labour Party, although different people may have experienced different things. But because we now have this enormous cohort, 80 plus, of Northern Conservative members of Parliament, a position my party, the Conservative Party, hasn't been in since the mid to early 1980s, it seemed to me as a former Northern Powerhouse Minister leading the Cabinet, looking at what I was going to do next in politics, really sensible to group us together as a powerful group of individuals, 80 seats, one voice sort of idea, so we can collectively, one, make our presence felt in the new Conservative Party, which is now a party of the North, uh, but two, make sure that we really deliver for the people we work for. I don't work for the Prime Minister. I don't work for Parliament. I work for people in Rosendale and Darwin and in Lancashire. That's accurately reflected across the North by colleagues and colleagues elsewhere in the United Kingdom, whichever, whichever party they represent. So I formed this group and as part of this group to deliver for my employers, i.e. the voters in Rosendale and Darwin. I think collectively we can do that. Could you give us some specific examples of um, either issues you've picked up or places where there is a tension between a, a Westminster-centric Tory party, a, 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 an Eton-educated Southern Prime Minister, and this, these new constituencies. What, what have you specifically like, felt the need to act on? What have you specifically been petitioning for over the past uh, year or so? Yeah, absolutely. It is not the preserve of the Conservative Party being Westminster-centric. It is the preserve of the government and governments of Tony Blair, Gordon Brown and uh, John Major and Margaret Thatcher. They are. We live in the most centralised country in Europe and one of the things we want to do is change that um, and that's why you know, I'm such a big supporter and believer in devolution in fact when I was Northern Powerhouse Minister I delivered 
uh, you know, a deal and a few renews of the existing deal. I'm hugely uh, keen for the government to deliver on its manifesto commitment to see devolution across the north. I want to break that stranglehold that Westminster has on northern areas. I want self-determination. I don't know anybody who doesn't. In fact, I think that drove, uh, you know, the Brexit vote in many areas, that desire, desire for sovereignty, not just from Brussels, but from London as well. Look, one really good recent example of where it's, it's almost an idea of the left, really, James. We are effectively a trade union for members of parliament from the north. One area I think we work really well. Uh, we got several of our members, I think about 60 or 70 of them, to sign a letter to the Chancellor and the Prime Minister in advance of the budget to say that we wanted to see the Treasury moved up to Teesside. There was a bit of a, an action, I think, by the civil service. They were quite keen for it to go to another metropolitan area, Newcastle or Manchester or Leeds. Um, and I think that letter was almost instrumental in delivering the new Treasury campus from Teesside, which is probably, in terms of shifting the power base from London, by the way, which is what I got in politics to do, mm -hmm. um, I think that's probably one of the most significant things. And I think the Northern Research Group, not me as an individual, but collectively as of members of parliament, had a huge role to play in that decision for the campus to go to the Northeast. Is there a sense that, um, is there a sense of kind of threat here? Are you are you kind of arguing to the central party that um, we heard a lot in the 2019 election about voters lending the Tory party their vote in order to get Brexit done, or indeed, as you say, to uh, to, to get rid of Corbyn? Um, is there a sense in which that kind of sense that the, the loan might be called in and these voters might drop the Tories if they're not seen to be delivering for the North? Is that part of your kind of message to the party? Well, I, I think that should be the message of every single member of parliament. If you don't deliver, you know, you have to apply for your job every four or five years, a bit more yeah. recently, but on the normal electoral cycle. And if you can't pull back and say, look, there's two or three things or 10 things that I've done that I'm really proud of and wouldn't have happened if I wasn't here, then in truth, it's time for people to vote for someone else. And, you know, I think at every election, people lend you your vote, no matter how big your majority is, whether you're in the safest seat or the most marginal seat, everyone starts with no majority as soon as an election's called. So there is that is a big part of it. But I also do think that, you know, voters are very canny and they know and understand with the COVID pandemic and with, you know, the challenges facing this country, that no one has a magic wand, Boris Johnson, Keir Starmer, no, no one has a magic wand. So I think what the Conservative Party has to demonstrate is that we are making progress. I don't think after 30 years of neglect in some of these constituencies that anyone believes that all of the challenges in some of the most porous and deprived areas of our country can be sorted out like someone snapping their fingers. But I do think that our Prime Minister and our party has the values and the desire to sort out all of these issues, including education, transport, you know, you name it. And I think in the next election, we have to demonstrate that we are, have a plan to deliver or better have started to deliver, at which point my view is that people will stick with voting Conservative, but not because they're lifelong Tories, but because they are transactional, will do what's right for them, will do what's right for their family and vote for a party that shares their core values. And I think the new Conservative Party 
uh, has demonstrated that and will continue to do so. So this isn't the first time that we've um, we, we've seen a kind of uh, branding exercise for a northern Toryism. You were the uh, northern powerhouse minister under David Cameron and George Osborne, and that was an attempt by the coalition government to show that they were delivering for for, for the north. In 2019, um, the IPPR think tank uh, produced a report saying that despite kind of local successes of devolution, uh, ultimately the Northern ha uh, Powerhouse project was irreconcilable with the austerity agenda that the, the Tory party were pursuing. Is there a sense in which there is a tension here between um, a group that are demanding more investments, that are demanding a kind of pretty major um, reassessments of the kind of economic assumptions of the last decade uh, and a party which is ultimately the party of capital, the party of the markets? Well, first of all, I mean, I don't think we should too lightly brush aside evolution. I'm intensely proud of the fact that it's this government, a Conservative government, that's delivered a mayor for Manchester, Leeds, Sheffield, Newcastle, north of the Tyne, uh, Teesside and others across the north and you know that is about part of this transfer of power you know i mentioned earlier we live in the most centralized country in europe of course it wasn't always the case it was during the first and second world war that we moved to a completely centralized economy now i you know i i did do gcse history um and i can tell you that i accurately told that the the threat of germany isn't that what it once was so I think it's about time, really, that we had some of those powers back. And I think devolution to stop. What I really want to see is the government deliver on its manifesto commitment to devolve power across the whole of the North. And the other thing I'd say about devolution is it's been politically blind. Because, of course, you know, we have a Labour mayor in Liverpool, a Labour mayor in Manchester, a Labour mayor in West Yorkshire, a Labour mayor in Sheffield City region, and, and a Conservative mayor in Teesside. If devolution was about gerrymandering power, for the Conservative Party, we certainly wouldn't have done it in the north of England first. So I think, you know, people should pay tribute that a government has put aside its political, narrow political interest to really deliver power, money and influence back to our regions. I think that's a great start and it's part of the Northern Powerhouse project that I'm exceptionally proud of. On the main question about whether a party of capitalism sits well with the values of northern voters and the people of the north I mean, i've lived and worked in the north my entire life and i can tell you that we care about pretty much the same thing as everyone else do i want my kids to have a great education i want to be able to afford a home i want to be able to afford to live and many of those in fact all of them i would argue are delivered through a thriving economy the best way of taking people out of poverty is to find them a good highly paid secure job and for me the northern powerhouse was always about that it was an economic project in a way in fact i think that the leveling up agenda isn't so i think that is a real weakness of the leveling up agenda what is the overarching there are lots of plans to do things in lots of areas but i can't see what the overarching economic rationale of leveling up is i think the northern powerhouse was different which is why i'm still a huge supporter of it because it was driven by infrastructure and connectivity a transfer of power and finally and most importantly of all I think about introducing foreign direct investment 
to the north of England to help drive that economic agenda. I just don't feel that levelling up is quite there yet. We've obviously got the levelling up white paper coming at the tail end of this year. That is a huge opportunity for the government to set out the economic rationale of the levelling up agenda. But it can't just be, in truth, about sort of, you know, spreading, you know, butter thinly on the toast. It's got, there's got to be a plan, and I look forward to hearing it from the government. Uh, as a, a new MP in 2010 and then as a government minister, you, you voted for many of the local government cuts that today you're petitioning to either be reversed or for the reversion that has happened uh, during the COVID crisis to be uh, made permanent or expanded. What is the difference uh, between the Conservative uh, Party that you became an MP under and Boris Johnson's? Is it all a response to uh, COVID-19 or is there uh, a, a kind of genuine economic populist conviction in, in how Boris Johnson works? What's what's new about these new Tories, as you put it before? Well, before we, before we sort of, let's do the historical before we do the hysterical maybe. Um, so the historical point is that when I entered parliament in 2010, because of an economic crisis, some would say caused by years of the Labour government, others would say, you know, caused by a global financial crisis. I mean, people can go away and discuss that. that, that we don't wish your party prepared to I think we may disagree about it. But, um, you know, in truth, there was no alternative, I believe. You may disagree. And also working with my own local councils, all of which for most of my period in Parliament have been Labour, and talking to them. In fact, I've been really impressed by how they have played their part in, uh, you know, delivering in the government's deficit reduction programme, the austerity programme, as people refer to it. And in truth, if you look on local authorities up and down this land, they often do a, a survey annually about people's happiness with the council services. There's been no significant drop off. In fact, in most cases, there's been a significant increase in people's satisfaction with the local authority. So you can't just measure uh, how well they're doing and what they spend, you have to measure on outcomes. And for many authorities, including the ones I cover in East Lancashire, on an outcomes basis in terms of people's satisfaction with services, it is in fact improved since 2010. And then the only other thing is to say, people refer to this as a great period of austerity. Let's not forget that, in fact, in every single year of that 2010 parliament, public spending went up. In fact, it wasn't cut in any of those years at all. Uh, it didn't go up as fast as some people are used to or as some people like, but in fact, it did go up. Um, in terms of Boris Johnson's rationale and what drives the sort of new Johnsonian Conservatives, I mean, if you look at his record as Mayor of London, I've been friends with Boris a very long time, I've known him back from his mayoral days, he is a very centrist politician, he's pro-immigration, he is uh, pro spending his pro-intervention actually in the economy in a way which many people in the Conservative Party who voted for him uh, first of all as MPs to become one of the candidates listed for leadership and then secondly Conservative Party members voting for him in great numbers um, probably probably don't feel the same uh, about his sort of centrist and almost leftist tendencies but of course you can see the same with Tony Blair the most popular Labour politician, the best one at ever winning elections that I think the Labour Party has ever had, he didn't really uh, represent necessarily 
the the views of the majority of members of the Labour Party, but he did chime very well with the general public. And it may be that Boris Johnson, to some extent, is replicating that. It's quite a good formula. Tony Blair used it to win. Boris Johnson has just used it to win the 2019 election with a record majority. Um, it, it's an election strategy and a government government strategy that seems to work. It's quite interesting to hear you compare uh, Boris Johnson to um, Blair in that way, um, because uh, I, I mean, let, let's let's get this straight. I, I, I'm absolutely not going to defend New Labour. Let, let's get a bit of that kind of record of New Labour in the North, which uh, can be read about in Tom Hazeldean's new book, uh, The Northern Question. Um, it, 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 when New Labour came in in 1997. The, the statement was unemployment in the northeast is an acceptable price to pay to curb inflation in the south. Uh, we can't ban businesses from relocating in the southeast, said Industry Secretary uh, Patricia Hewitt. Blair and Campbell denied that there was a north-south divide. Homes were demolished in the north in order to uh, uh, create artificial scarcity to attempt to spread a rise in house prices to the north. Uh, the, the list goes on. Um, to compare um, but what Boris Johnson is doing now to what Blair did in the 90s, it, it might work at the level of kind of aesthetics or electioneering, but in terms of what was actually delivered, it's kind of concerning to hear you make that comparison. And uh, I, I guess what a lot of um, your constituents will be hoping for is that the promises that Boris Johnson made as the kind of figurehead of the Leave campaign, that what we'll be seeing after Brexit and what we'll be seeing in a a, um, a government led by him would be um, a, a kind of a, an abandonment of that kind of old austerity position, an abandonment of that kind of embrace of forces of globalization that is associated with new labor and would be something different. Could, can you explain a bit more kind of at the level of policy and at the level of what is what is changing in terms of the Tory party's attitude to economics? Because that, that simple kind of comparison with Blair maybe will worry people and not just those on the radical left like myself. <laughs> well, it may worry your, your viewers and listeners. Mm -hmm. uh, the comparison was in answer to your question about where does Boris sit in terms of his political view with the rest of the Conservative Party. I think the comparison holds water, actually, because you know, Tony Blair, an extremely successful Labour politician, as you've just demonstrated, not necessarily popular with the left of his own party. But in terms of, I mean, the economic uh, rationale and drive of our Prime Minister, I mean, you know, I think he is driven in a way that he was. I think he is naturally an internationalist, first and foremost. I think this idea of global Britain and a self-confidence and a bullience in uh, Britain and her brand around the world, I think, is something he will pursue. We have seen that recently with the announcement of the British flagship, the replacement to uh, Britannia, uh, the Royal Yacht Britannia as a sort of you know, the ultimate projection of soft power and brand Britain around the globe. I think that is very much wired into the Prime Minister's DNA. I think in terms of his economic policy, um, you know, he, he has sat on public spending in uh, areas of the north, to level of the map, he is set, I believe, on delivering infrastructure, Northern Powerhouse Rail, HS2, to try and change it, including uh, a tunnel from Scotland to Northern Ireland. I think he is going to be an infrastructure prime minister because he regards that as a way of sp spreading prosperity. Look, I think the uh, 
Tony Blair government record on the North-South divide is pretty poor. But I think that came on top, if I'm being completely honest, as a pretty poor record of the previous Conservative government. Um, you know, for decades, we have had a Whitehall-controlled government, over-centralised, that has ignored and not delivered for the people of the North of England. And in truth, you know, I think that it is refreshing to have had that breakthrough by George Osborne, who recognised our potential, coined the phrase Northern Powerhouse, recognised that there is something, a real opportunity in the North, and now followed on by the levelling up agenda. you say about the the kind of uh, the nature of the the new Tory voters in the north um, it, it's absolutely the case that, that much like Donald Trump in 2016 uh, Tory success in 2019 has been based on um, on it, not the majority but enough working class voters making that transition from the uh, nominal party of the left to the nominal party of the right but really the 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 success is due to um a political changing of mind of much older voters if uh, if we only take the under 50 vote uh, in britain then um you would get a landslide for jeremy corbyn and and that that is something quite new thatcher won among the 18 to 24 year olds uh today you have to get over 50 to find a, a majority for um, for, for support for the Conservatives. We have a very old population, and so that is reflected in in a outstanding victory for the Tories. But it, it, is, it is centrally based on an older population. So my question would be, like, how do you explain that? Um, the, the, the left has various explanations. Uh, and also, does that concern you about the future of this project? Is there something artificial or temporary about this apparent hegemony of the uh, Tory party in Britain today? Well, James, of course, we don't know, do we? But I, from my point of view, I'll be hopeful and say no. I mean, look, we, we have tried a uh, potential landslide victory for Jeremy Corbyn, and it didn't really work for you. It worked rather well for us. I mean, clearly, everyone's free to vote. But uh, in virtually every election, in fact, since the Second World War, the proportion of young people voting uh, has not been very high. The one immediately after the Second World War, uh, when Churchill lost power, lots of young people did vote because uh, they all wanted to get out of the army and come home and be with their families. So I sort of have some sympathy with that view. But in terms of the long-term success of the Conservative Party and its sort of support in the North, will be about delivery. People... You know, people have exactly the same desires and wants in the north of England, I think, as anywhere else in the country. And if we can demonstrate to people, look, those highly paid, secure jobs can be yours. You can afford to buy a home. You can have great schools for your children to be going educate, going educated. And I think those younger voters um, will say, see, this is a formula that works for me and my family. And I think if the Conservative Party is going to continue with this strong uh, voter base in the north of England, the very canny voters of the north will measure them on delivery rather than anything else. Let's talk about 2017. I, I mean, I, I appreciate that you, you've resisted being drawn on departing from the 
party line on the difference between uh, Boris Johnson and uh, and Cameron, and also on uh, on the difference between Johnson's economics and and uh, and austerity. But uh, can I draw you on this? What what did what did you feel in the twenty seventeen election in your own seat, which stayed basically uh, uh, safe, but nonetheless it saw a ten percent increase in the vote for Labour under uh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn. I would speculate that some of that was um, the, uh, uh, the the part of the fifteen percent of former UKIP voters. Who uh, swung to Jeremy Corbyn in the uh, in the 2017 election? So there were a lot of surprises, despite what you said before about in 2019 your constituents uh, having this kind of terrific um, dislike of Corbyn. Um, th- th- that that massive swing in 2017 did that did that feel like a threat uh, for the, about a year afterwards? Corbyn was ahead in the polls, and Theresa May was basically. Uh, well, went from being someone who had a lot of support, not only on the right, but in the liberal press to kind of collapsing before our eyes. What what was your sort of view of what was happening there? And how did you think the Tory party needed to change, if at all? I'd say the sort of the view from the front line, of course, the 2017 general election was preceded by a pretty outstanding set of local elections for us locally in Lancashire. Um, so the Theresa May sort of poll lead was real uh, because it was demonstrated at the ballot box, which is the best, you know, poll you, most accurate poll you can ever have. Um, and then when the first couple of weeks of the campaign, when you're going out knocking on doors, talking to people about the Conservative, will you vote for me? Will you vote Conservative? People were literally coming to the front door saying, oh, you know, I really, really supportive of Theresa May. I think she's wonderful. I'm going to support her um, in some unexpected areas in a way that they do now for Boris Johnson. You know, in areas we wouldn't have traditionally targeted for, you know, as our first port of call for Conservative votes. Um, then the Conservative Party launched its manifesto with the uh, proposals around, I think it's called the granny tax or uh, social care. And, you know, sort of overnight, like flicking a switch, you would go back to the same doors, having marked them down. I'm sure many of your viewers are wizened and hardened campaigners, having marked them down on your pledge list. You'd go back to your pledge letter or you'd knock them up and they'd say, no, I'm going to stick with Labour. And I think actually, whatever the rights or wrongs of that specific policy, or whatever the rights or wrongs of how it was handled, people who were considering voting Conservative, many for the first time, sort of slightly looked at it and said, something I still just don't like, they don't share my values, I don't trust them, whatever it was, and they sort of flicked back. To, to the Labour Party, um, which I think was a lot of the reason that we ended up doing a lot worse in the general election. And yes, you had a, a group of younger voters who were engaged, many of whom for the first time in politics by the sort of Jeremy Corbyn message of we will pay off all your tuition fees, we will abolish tuition fees, um, and, and voted Labour. So I think it was a sort of a, an interesting mix of the Conservative Party getting its manifesto catastrophically wrong, then getting the handling of the fallout of having made the mistake catastrophically wrong. I think that sort of reinforced the people. We don't necessarily like what these people have to say and we don't really feel we can trust them because 
we think we know what they said and they're saying they didn't say it and there's just a trust element with that interesting offer that they sort of the Corbyn Labour Party made to young people which you know we were talking earlier weren't we about how can you get young people to vote and clearly young people voted for many of whom for the first time in their droves of that election I'm not sure how deliverable um, that offer was. Uh, I know that very shortly after the election, the policy was changed in any event by John McDonald and Jeremy Corbyn. But, you know, they didn't win the election, so we'll never know, will they? Maybe they, maybe they would have got in and delivered on all their promises. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, we will never know what could have been. I think it's important to recall that Theresa May... Um, she's remembered as this the shambles and it's remembered as a, a disastrous election campaign. But her share of the vote was the biggest since Blair's in 1997. It wasn't that Theresa May lost support. It's that Labour gained the support that she needed to gain, as it were. Labour had, uh, having you know, lost support in every election since 1997 and particularly lost working class support disproportionately in every election since 1997, had a momentary reprieve where, as you describe, it managed to uh, inspire a usually low voting, uh, low turning out kind of group in, in, in the young, but also managed to retain older voters and working class voters who had supported Brexit because it's sort of shows that there was a kind of um there was a kind of contract there let, let us represent the um socially liberal and progressive uh, and redistributive uh, anti-austerity desires of the young and we will deliver on this hugely symbolic kind of issue of sovereignty that uh, that people have, have voted for um the, the... Yeah, you see, your knowledge of zoology, James, is far greater than mine, but I, I, I bow to your greater knowledge on that one. Um, but I, do, I think it's a really interesting point you, you make. I, I just think it's the what could have been election. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if Labour had won, I think it would be a diff very different country. I personally, I would, wouldn't I, from my point of view, so I think it would actually be a worse country. You would, of course, say, I'm guessing it would be a better one. But it was the what could have been, and you know, politics is about luck, and people have their moments. That was Jeremy Corbyn's moment. He just didn't do quite enough or make quite enough progress to get over the line and, and try something different. Yeah, I mean, as Seamus Milne said on the night, it's too early. <laughs> we needed another few weeks of the election campaign or another six months. Um, I mean, you, you say that about, uh, you know, if, if it, it's not your view that um, that those policies were deliverable, but so much of the 2017 and especially the 2019 uh, manifesto is now Tory policy, a Green New Deal, which uh, noses were turned up at uh, in 2019, is now a, a kind of term that's used, including by members of your group. And uh, so much of the kind of COVID response has also kind of taken a, taken leads from. Uh, from what we call McDonaldomics. Um, yeah, but then obviously that took a global pandemic to make it necessary. So that's the sort of different of point course. of view. On the, on the, on the uh, pinching of people's clothes, I'm fully in favour of in politics. And mm. if you ever want to get on, you have to be fully in favour of. The, the most compelling narrative I thought of the Labour Party manifesto, both in 17 and 19, but particularly in 17, was the language around the green industrial revolution and green collar jobs. I think intrinsically, 
in across the north, basically because we were the cradle of the first industrial revolution, we understand that those high tech manufacturing and engineering jobs that can be delivered by that green industrial revolution are secure and relatively highly paid jobs. And that's why I think that narrative of the Labour Party manifesto in both 2017 and 2019 is something the government has adopted. I'm fully in favour of that. It's something I talk about when I talk to people in my own community. I say, you know, we have to sort of get the dividend of the green industrial revolution like we had great wealth and jobs and security generated by the first, second and third industrial revolutions in Lancashire. And so, I mean, I think that's somewhere where we would agree. I think the Labour Party got its language right around that. And it's something, unfortunately, you know, the sort of the victors always write the history. It's something I think the government is going to mercilessly adopt and claim as its own. But in truth, you know, I think the intellectual property uh, probably lies with the left. But um, yeah, well, it's going mean, we to be claimed by the right. We, we don't have to say that, uh, that the left won the argument as, as Corbyn did, but I, I think it, uh, I think it, it probably is a, a kind of uh, a tick in the left's column that we at least normalised some of this language or, 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 or kind of made it common enough that uh, Tories feel comfortable using it. Um, well, the I difference mean, between normalising language and the method of implementation, I sort of. Uh, I often really annoy people in my own party by saying, you know, in truth, I, I, you know, I've got quite a lot of good mates who are in the Labour Party, both councillors and members of parliament. I get on pretty, you know, you don't hate people in politics if you've got a brain. I tell you, the, the sort of, you know, absolute dogmatic people who hate me. I don't hate anyone. In fact. Um, but, you know, the great thing about politics and parliament is, and why it's possible to be friends with people across the political divide from the SNP to the Labour Party to, to Liberal Democrats, is ultimately you all agree about the destination. Everyone gets into politics because they want to improve the lot of the people they represent. They want more security, more wealth in their community, better services. Often you disagree about the route to that destination, and that's the politics of it. But I find that, you know, in terms of Jeremy Corbyn's mantra of we need to create more highly paid, secure jobs, I absolutely agree with it. It's in the Conservative Party manifesto, it's in the Labour Party manifesto, it's in both 2017 and 2019. The destination was the same. The political debate is, is, is the route and the journey, and that's where I think we would disagree. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I would maybe this isn't what you expect, but I would say that I think that the left should uh, feel far more comfortable uh, with Boris Johnson as Prime Minister than, uh, than with David Cameron or even Theresa May as Prime Minister. Um, I think at the level of, um, I don't know, social views, alleged um, uh, racism, deportations, all that stuff is was you know, begun under earlier administrations and, and is consistent. So at least, uh, I mean, you, you've offered the kind of defence of, uh, of austerity, but I would say that that was... Um, that was a, an upward movement of wealth, uh, an economically uh, illiterate policy that killed as many Britons as COVID did. And uh, I, you haven't quite been willing to see um, the transition to Boris in these terms. But I, I think that, uh, well, we've gone from a kind of quantitative easing that's poured money into the finance sector after 2010 to what we see today, which is, to use a Corbyn phrase, almost a people's quantitative easing, where that money has been poured into you know normal people and local businesses in in the hope of uh of um keeping the economy afloat and and uh, inspiring growth from 
the ground up, I, th I actually think it's totally different. Um, can I ask you about the, um, I think this is in your neighbouring constituency, actually, the Preston, Preston model. We spoke to Matthew Brown, who's the uh, council leader of the city of Preston a few weeks ago. And uh, Preston is one, is one of a, a small number of cities in the north that bucked the disastrous trend for the Labour Party in the last local elections in retaining all its council seats. Um, it's it seen a great deal of city growth, um, basically by reversing the kind of logic of how um, public spending is managed locally. Um, basically, the, the, the system that's been in place, at least since Thatcher and certainly accelerated under Blair, has been that public spending that goes on at a local level is often kind of goes on outsourced companies that is money that is effectively being kind of sucked out of local areas into often uh, international companies with no relationship with the area whatsoever in preston they're trying to um encourage local businesses and use the the power of kind of local spending to encourage local businesses encourage them to have um, cooperative elements, green credentials, and basically uh, using that as an engine to um, give local people more autonomy, give them more of a stake in who they work for, give them better quality jobs. I asked if um, Matthew Brown kind of sees any kinship with the work that you're doing in the, the Northern Research Group, if um, these uh, Tories who are petitioning uh, the government for more investment in the north. I asked if there was any kind of kinship or collaboration there, and he said that he felt that, uh, you know, he's a party man. He felt that the um, that your work is 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 broadly kind of aesthetic and a sort of branding exercise. The 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 amounts being asked for are nowhere near enough, and that actually there's been a total incuriosity on the part of conservatives um, in this kind of. Uh, new approach to local services that we're seeing in Preston, Salford and elsewhere. Um, what's your view of these kind of much publicised projects and uh, do you see any kind of room for collaboration in the North in the way that Matthew Brown doesn't? Well, I, there's always room for collaboration and it's a good point for us to end in, in Lancashire. I might say it's quite a big place, so Preston mm. is actually quite a long way away from me. Um, but it appears from what you know from from your interview and what you say that Preston has sort of focused. I go back to that point almost where we started about how is austerity for so-called effective communities is you know this is taxpayers' cash. There is no such thing as government money or even council money. It is all our money, and you know councils owe a duty and responsibility to spend it in a way that delivers value for the taxpayer and improve services and both of those are possible to do and I think it's really interesting the way Preston is looking at this rather than for example Blackburn with Darwin who uh, outsources some they have actually reduced it in recent years to capital um, so I, I, I think we can all learn by that but I think the reason I would guess um, although I didn't go there in the election that Preston but the trend is because they are focusing on service delivery I don't um, measure how much uh, my wife loves me or how much my children love me by the value of the Christmas present that they buy me. I normally measure it by the thought and consideration that goes into it. I value the outcome rather than the input to it. And I think that voters feel the same. Interestingly, on the issue of 
you know, whether leveling up money is, is big enough or going anywhere. I think there's some really interesting work being done in Greater Manchester on this, and I pay tribute to the work Andy Burnham's done. Let's look at that leveling up fund, four billion pounds, um, and look at the amount of foreign direct investment that's gone into, well, that's four billion pounds for the whole of England, by the way. And then look at the amount of foreign direct investment that's gone into Greater Manchester. In total, about six billion, a mix of uh, money from the, the Chinese government and uh, the government uh, of the UAE. But whatever people think about the source of the money, I'm sure that could be subject to long debate. But they're doing really interesting things with it. So people would not believe that a foreign investor, historically would not have believed that a foreign investor would invest in affordable housing. They would think this is only something the government can do, the state can do, your local council can do. But that will that money is delivering from memory, it's about 10,000 affordable homes in Greater Manchester. So I think we have to be prepared when we're looking for good models to put aside political differences. I'll happily work with Andy Burnham and people from Preston to work out what really delivers for the North. And I do think that where we should be looking is yes, absolutely, how can we deliver good money for taxpayers? But how can we create the North? as a global landing pad for capital to invest in businesses and in communities and in infrastructure in the north of England. Because in truth, four billion quid is a lot of money, but it's not enough. And if we want to take that four billion and make it 24 billion or 100 billion or whatever we believe is needed, we're going to have to do that in partnership with the private sector and with international investors and with, and with local authorities. And so I think now is the time for people to think inventively, to look at what people like Andy Burnham and Ben Houchin are doing, and to really, you know, lay aside those differences and find solutions that work for our communities. That's certainly what I get up in the morning and try and do. Uh, yeah, um, I, I, th I think it's important to note that this isn't a, a, a partisan question. I mean, uh, it's great to hear you your take on um, on what Andy Burnham is doing in Manchester. Uh, but then you look over to, to Sheffield with a, a, a Labour virality and um, you're seeing the, the absolute kind of opposite tendency. Uh, Manchester is, uh, is, is taking the, the buses, uh, public transport into, into ownership of a, a public company, whereas uh, Sheffield is going in the other direction. Um, but isn't this the great thing, James, and we do just need to finish on this point, isn't this the great thing about devolution, though? Because... You know, in truth, whether you agree with what Dan Jarvis is doing or Andy Burnham's doing or Ben Houchin's doing, you at least know who's doing it. Mm -hmm. And this is why I'm such a believer in devolution. So if you said to people in Rosendale, where I live, uh, you know, who runs the buses, they probably wouldn't know. I mean, you know, many of them might, but they wouldn't know. And if you said to them, OK, well, you know, it's the council, in fact, uh, the borough council in my case, um, can you name the leader of that council? I guess that that small percentage of people who knew it was the borough council rather than the county council, um, although the county council is, of course, responsible for the subsidies, so it's very complicated, um, then couldn't name the leader. But the great thing about devolution is if you don't like what's happening to your buses in Sheffield or in Greater Manchester, or if you love it, you have one accountable individual who you can vote for in a sort of presidential election every few years, to support them or get rid of them. And that's why I'm such a strong believer in devolution, because it's about accountability. And for far too long, uh, you know, people have 
hidden behind Whitehall departments, they've hidden behind, we are the opposition, they are the government, people have hidden behind councils. I, I like it if you have one individual out there, you know, your Tracy Bravens, whoever it may be, who we can judge. And you know, the great thing about politics is you, know, you don't always win, but you can have a blinking good job at firing people who you think are doing a bad job. And that's why I really am impatient to see devolution across the whole north. We need a mayor for Lancashire, we need a mayor for Cumbria, we need to fix the slightly broken devolution settlement that we have up in the northeast with the north of Tyne mayoral combined authority not encompassing effectively half of the northeast. And um and then do something in the rest of Yorkshire. I think if we do that, you know, we we will create a powerful new tier of politicians who can fight fair. I'm fully supportive of that, even though many of them will not be conservatives. I think that even the fiercest uh, partisans of either the Labour Party or of the, the left in general needs to appreciate that um, this is not the same old Toryism uh, and uh, whatever criticisms might be made of it, it's great to hear it in your own words. Uh, thanks very much for your time today, Jake Berry. Thanks. Thank you.